spirit tree, eerie, mysterious environments, four misfit friends. Welcome to the second episode of season two of the Evoking the Sublime podcast. My name is Shay, and I will be your host for today. If you know, you know, but for those that don't, today we are going to talk about Ori and the Will of the Wisps. I am immensely excited to talk about this game today, so let's get into it. Ori and the Will of the Wisps was the highly anticipated sequel to Ori and the Blind Forest. The whole development process started with Daniel Smith, a senior producer at Xbox Games Studios, listening to some constructive criticism about the length of the Blind Forest. Fans wanted a sequel, and they wanted it to be longer. With that in mind, Smith and the rest of the team looked into ways that they could further develop the story to allow them to increase the scope of the sequel while also following along with the narrative that the Blind Forest created. As they started to evaluate the directions that they wanted to take with the sequel, the team had an interesting challenge of changing the combat style to be more melee focused and it directly informing the story's development. More abilities and the bash ability becoming more versatile, the combat in the sequel further entrenched itself into a metroidvania style game in both mechanics and combat difficulty. While Ori and the Blind Forest was a two-dimensional game, Moon Studios wanted to up the ante and make the sequel three-dimensional, allowing the character models to visually pop with the layered backgrounds. Jeremy Gritton, formerly of Blizzard Entertainment, was impressed by the Blind Forest and left Blizzard to join the Moon Studios to head the undertaking of stepping the visuals up to a new level. The process of going from 2D to 3D paid off in the cinematics and vignettes of the game as well, making them more immersive and impactful. Milton Guasti, the developer of another Metroid 2 remake, or AM2R, was brought on for designing levels. Part of the process he worked on was integrating the map from the Blind Forest into the Will of the Wisps and surrounding it with additional levels. Gareth Coker, the composer for the Blind Forest soundtrack, returned to the Will of the Wisps by incorporating some of the themes in the first game into the sequel while also composing multiple new themes for new characters. With the level of expansion the team was looking to do in Will of the Wisps, they needed to hire more staff. When the Blind Forest was developed, it was created by a team of 20. With Will of the Wisps, the number quadrupled by the time of completion. During the development process, Gennady Coral, the co-founder of Moon Studios and one of the programmers, stated that the team was crazy iterative, creating thousands of different versions of the game as they continue to update and expand upon the scope of the game. This approach was imperative for the developmental process. The team had to create an integral tool that allowed them to better manage the 3D characters to blend in seamlessly with the 2D environments. The creation of that tool and dynamic lighting allowed them to show a level of detail that expanded upon the groundwork that the Blind Forest laid. 
Each tree branch and leaf would sway in the wind. A ripple in a pond could be easily seen. The polish that the team implemented is astounding. If you want to witness it, there's an awesome video narrated by Coral on GameRant. Ori and the Will-o'-the-Wisps was announced at E3 2017 with no set release date. A second trailer was released at E3 2018, which focused more on the gameplay and announced the release date to be 2019. At E3 2019, a new trailer was dropped which announced that the game had been delayed. However, revealing the new release date to be February 11, 2020. The game faced one final delay as the final release trailer was shown at the Game Awards 2019. The game was slated for a March 11, 2020 release. One of the major reasons for the delay was the increased scope of the sequel. With how interconnected the game was, if one feature was changed, it influenced everything else. With how focused they were and how much polish they wanted the game to have, they chose to delay the release until they felt satisfied with the product that they were putting out. Ori and the Will of the Wisps was released on Microsoft's Game Pass for both the Xbox One and Windows. They were excited at the prospect as Smith stated, I think Game Pass is a great vehicle to get what we've created into more gamers' hands and, ultimately, I think it's really healthy for the Ori IP. It's really healthy for Moon. It's really healthy for Xbox for more people to play Ori. At this time, there has been no mention of a Switch release or any special enhancements to a potential Xbox Series X release. And now, please enjoy an interview with the art director Jeremy Gritton and the lead designer Chris McKenty. Hey everyone, this is Shay from Evoking the Sublime. Um, I have a very, very special episode today. Um, I am joined by two wonderful gentlemen. I am joined by Jeremy Gritton. Uh, he was the art director. And I am joined by Chris McKenty, the lead designer. And both of these wonderful gentlemen worked on Ori and Will of the Wisps. So, Jeremy and Chris, how are you guys doing today? Hey, doing well, man. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah, same here. Great to be here talking to you. Hope we can share some interesting stuff with you. Yeah, I, Like I was telling you guys before, I am so, so excited to talk about this game. Um, absolutely loved both of them. Uh, brought me to tears, both of them. And uh, Will of the Wisps was everything I wanted and more. So I'm really excited to break it down with you guys. Um, we'll just jump into a very uh, quick few easy questions to kind of warm us all up. And then we'll go into the more in-depth questions and we'll just go from there. So my first question to you guys is who was your favorite character in the Ori universe and why? I'll go ahead and throw it to Jeremy first, if that's okay. Well, um, that's a really good question uh, because we had put a lot of time into a lot of the characters to develop them. Um, I think I'll limit it just to Will of the Wisps since that's the title that I that I uh, worked on. Um, but probably my favorite uh, is 
Quolock, um, just because I I think that he's a very wholesome character, um, and I I I like the relationship that he has with the Moki, and then obviously um, the scene at the end of his arc uh, I think is a is a powerful scene, and he's kind of imparting on Ori his you know his desire that that Ori would look after the Moki for him, and I think that 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 selflessness that he has um that endears him to me uh I, I guess this this podcast we will be going through spoilers um absolutely so uh, yeah i hope that's okay just warning anybody that's listening to it there will be spoilers so yeah. uh probably might get particular moving forward <laughs> yeah no i appreciate you putting that disclaimer in there um because yeah i this is uh because it's going to be about the creation and design of it anything goes here so um and Honestly, I agree. Qualic was one of my favorite characters of Will of the Wisps. Definitely a wonderful addition. Um, Chris, what was what was your favorite character uh, from Will of the Wisps? Yeah, that's actually a really tricky question. Um, I mean, obviously, if I really had to choose a character, it would be Ori. But that's maybe cheating because it's the main character and it's the player character. And obviously, his journey is the most fleshed out it's like the like the main thread of the game and everything but i think the reason i would say ori uh well mostly also because jeremy already took quolock <laughs> is um is partially because i think i'm per and i I'm, i like jeremy i didn't work on the first game either uh i was also hired to work on on the sequel and um i'm i'm actually very happy very satisfied with how we managed to like continue ori's personal journey in the second game and how we, especially how we managed to conclude his story arc um, in what I think is a really, really powerful finale to the game. And I like the way that we managed to sort of um, craft this, this adventure ahead of him and, and build the, these relationships, not just continue to grow the relationships he had with his, with the, the immediate family characters from the first game, but also how we sort of created this new relationship and this new bond between him and Ku obviously like the child of the antagonist of the first game i always thought that relationship was a very interesting one um and we had that from the get-go so we had to figure out how we wanted to, to develop that further and um i just I, I really i'm i'm very satisfied with what we managed to do with with ori with the rest of the story and his relation to the all the different characters and things in the in the world of will of the wisps no, I, I think that's perfectly okay. I don't think that's cheating at all because <laughs> I can imagine because you guys both didn't work on the first game having to kind of – granted, you didn't work, I don't think, directly on the story building per se, but slating in there that the relationships that already or Ori already built and um, just considering that and – thinking about how Ori maintains the relationships and they still feel organic through the sequel while also building this new relationship with Ku and some of the other side characters like Qualic, for example, just felt very, very organic. And so I absolutely think Ori is also a wonderful answer there. Definitely not cheating. Um, Chris and I both actually did work heavily on the story. Oh, you did? Uh, yeah, especially initially, um, it was really, it was Chris, uh, me, and then our creative director, Thomas, the three of us were the ones who really 
hashed out the outline uh, for the entire script and um, figured out all of the, you know, all of the character relationships and all of the big beats and how we would sort of intertwine the story moments uh, with the design. Um, And then, you know, and then the story team grew a little bit from there. And so we had additional writers coming on and helping us flesh out those scenes and, you know, write the dialogue uh, with the knowledge of, okay, this is the scene and these are the characters in the setup and this is the information that we want to convey. And then they converted that into a, you know, into a full scene with some beautifully written dialogue. Um, But yeah, both of us were involved uh, with the story right from the get-go. And that was kind of a natural process that happened just because we were, we were two of the people uh, on the team that we were heavily interested in the story. So we were giving a lot of feedback initially. And then that just kind of became, Hey, how about the three of us? We'll, uh, we'll work on it together. That's so cool. Yeah. The funny thing is, is uh, neither of us was really hired for story purposes. Like Jeremy was hired to be an artist because he, he is an artist. Uh, and I was hired to be a level designer. But the cool thing about the studio is just how, you know, when you show an interest in something, and especially if that comes paired with um, some some sort of degree of talent for it or some kind of sensibility for it that, that shows through, um, the team is more than happy to sort of bring you in on whatever aspect of, of the project uh, that interests you as long as you sort of, you know, have something to add to the, to the, the creative process and stuff there. And so, yeah, it just was this kind of unexpected but sort of, you know, natural process of us being brought into the story pro- uh, story team and and then yeah we we were basically like a part of the fundamental core of that process throughout the entire production and until making like last minute rewrites and changes and tweaks to cut scenes and shuffling a few moments around until yeah the very last few months of production basically that's awesome uh, it was a very interesting process yeah interesting so that kind of in a way made you feel more inclusive with the project as a result then because yeah you guys weren't even brought in for that purpose that's so cool i didn't know that and i apologize that i didn't know that that's really really cool because yeah this the story obviously is so affecting and i like in some ways i envy the fact that you got you guys got to be able to work on such a moving story that's super impressive and yeah actually oh go ahead oh sorry well, just uh, it, I just want to say it's, it's actually interesting because historically, like the projects I got to work on at previous companies were very goofy, slapsticky. There was no real story to speak of. And one of the appealing things about the, the offer to work at Moon Studios when I was contacted was the idea of working on such a story-heavy emotional experience. That was very, very interesting for me because I love emotional affecting stories in general. And I think that them in games is, is a really interesting problem to solve. Um, and when it gets pulled off well, it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And so, yeah, like definitely not only being able to be a part of that project, but to have like uh, have, have my hands in the actual story process and trying to craft those moments, you know, even something as simple as making a trailer for the for the announcement and seeing people cry at the trailer like that that was already like oh my god we're we're making something really special here yeah. and then mm-hmm. getting to the final game and the reactions and stuff like you know that you you did something right and that's really very very satisfying moment in in my career for sure and i know for me as well it gave me like a lot of connection as well to the project just being involved with the story and and helping to craft those emotional moments it really made me feel so invested um in what we were creating so uh, yeah, it was really just an amazing opportunity that, that Moon gave us to, to be involved with that. 
I'm really happy to hear that because even amongst my friends, yeah, anybody who's played this game feels so moved by the story that you guys helped create and perpetuate with this sequel. So, yeah, I hope I hope you guys know how important that this story is to so many people and I I'm just happy that you guys feel so fortunate because I th- I think yeah, it's it's a it's a gift that I think has given everybody you guys and the fans immense amount of joy and satisfaction to see Ori's story end at this game the way it finishes in this game. Um, You know, obviously at the end of the game, we don't know what actually is going to happen to Ori, and we'll kind of touch upon that a little bit later. But just to see the way this game ends with Ori's story is so satisfying. So... It's I, I'm just happy that you guys see it that way. It makes me very, very happy to hear that. Um, what was one of your guys' favorite things to design in this game? Because knowing now that you guys had a hand in the story as well as the art design or the level design, what was one aspect of the game that you absolutely were just elated to design? Um. Do you want me to go first, Chris? Go for it. Uh, I think for me, um, I got to do a lot of the storyboarding for our different cinematic sequences in the game. Um, and so I have a lot of favorites. But if I have to look back on it and say which one is probably my my absolute favorite, uh, it would be right in the beginning of the prologue. There's this um, seasonal montage. And it shows uh, all these different adorable moments of the family kind of bonding together. And it's just meant to be this really heartwarming kind of um, flowing camera through time and space uh, in Swallow's Nest. And it's really cool for me when I see that um, in its final state, because it was one of the very first things that I worked on when I joined Moon. I think it was even my, my first week when I got there, I was doing little sketches saying, hey, I think it would be fun if we had a, a montage of seasonal moments of the family together to wow. help help people really, um, because there might be new players because it's a sequel. It's not a guarantee that everybody's going to be coming back from Blind Forest. So we really wanted to have this sort of this emotional beat or series of beats that would let you connect with the characters. Um, and then... Uh, you know, everybody was on board for that. So then it got developed a little bit further. And it's just really cool to see how that sometimes things change a lot, you know, over production. But that sequence really just lined up, I mean, almost one to one to the initial um, schematic that I had drawn up. And we elaborated on the little moments and the acting and so on. But the actual pacing of them and the position, you know, and what happens in each spot, all of it pretty much stayed the same. So when we saw the final it just felt like, wow, this is exactly what I was hoping for from the beginning. Um, and uh, and what I really like about that sequence is that it shows um, the relationships that all the different members of the family have with one another. So you'll have a moment with, you know, Gumo and Ku, and then you'll have a moment with uh, Naru and Ku, and you'll have a moment with, you know, Naru and Ori, and all these different little things. And we even had uh, sort of like a, a little extra touch put in there where. Um, Naru and Ori are building a snowman in the background and 
and that snowman it looks like Naru's father from the definitive edition. So you get that sense of just that love that you know family has for each other, even even members of the family that aren't there anymore. Um, and I I knew that the story would have a lot of uh, heavier, you know, sadder emotional beats later. And so I really liked the idea of contrasting that by having just these really just happy, heartwarming moments at the beginning. And, and, uh, and I love that stuff. Um, so it's just something that, you know, it's just very meaningful to me that, that whole stretch. Yeah. I, very succinctly, I want to say that's one of the best moments in the game. Uh, it's for me, it was one of the most memorable just because it's, it, it just shows that strong bond that that family has. And that bond is such a, such an important aspect of the whole game so that scene hits the right note so yeah thank you that was a challenge too because we knew that we didn't have that much time to get that across so it was a lot of characters we were throwing a lot of characters at at the player right away um and so we were thinking okay how can we most concisely get you on board with the idea that this family cares about one another um in a very short amount of time i think it maybe has a one minute runtime that sequence yeah Um, and, and I think that we were able to, uh, to effectively do it. And, you know, a lot of that is to the credit to the team that, that executed it, you know, all the artists and the animators and everybody, they, you know, the music obviously was beautiful. Um, so everyone really came together to, uh, to make that happen. Yeah. You and the team nailed it. Simple as that. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Chris, same question to you. What was one of your favorite, um, aspects that you designed in this game? Uh, yeah, I, if I think about it, I think the first thing that comes to mind, and it's for, from a gameplay perspective, um, it's probably the bosses in the game. Um, I I want to come back to a story thing in a moment as well, but like probably the one of my one of my core contributions to the project, I think, is the I was probably the core designer on all of the boss fights in the game. Um, and Moon Studios hadn't really done bosses in the in the previous game. Obviously, there were a few mini bosses like these slugs that jump out of the sand, and you you sort of fight them. But combat in general was a thing in Blind Forest that wasn't super um, like let's say well developed. Like it was obviously uh, on the back burner to you know obviously the platforming was the focus of the game, and they did that really really well. Um, but from the get go, when I joined this project, it was like we want we want proper combat. And we want proper boss fights, not just escape sequences. And I, I felt very lucky that I was able to be given the chance to kind of like drive the the boss, you know, sort of design uh, development process with a couple of core guys, uh, like animators, programmer that really like got where we were trying to go with it. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the process because it wasn't just a gameplay process. We weren't just making like gamey bosses. Like if you remember from the game, these bosses, they have a real sense of presence. They're, they're huge, towering creatures. Yes. They, they have epic intros um, and obviously spoiler stuff, like we said, but like Quolock becoming a boss, that was something that was very established from early on in the story process. But getting us to that place in the actual game itself, like, and the mechanics of the fight, the, the fact that it's got the creature from the, from the Wellspring watermill on its back that's manipulating it and how we got him to the luma pools and everything figuring all of that stuff out 
was also like a part it was all in, like a part of developing the the bosses for this game because they aren't just here's a gamey thing in a gamey room isolated event like they 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 were integrated to the whole experience um and so that was actually a really really cool sort of challenge to solve like there were tons of challenges to solve with having these giant 3D creatures in 2D environments you know having clear telegraphed attacks and like fighting larger than life creatures and stuff so um I'd say that, and we can talk about it more later on if you want to talk gameplay stuff, but I think like that was definitely something that I, I really enjoyed like being a part of, despite how challenging it was sometimes. Um, but one, one other thing like related to story that I'm actually really happy made it into the game, um, it, in the end of the game, when Shriek basically uh, retreats from the fight, when she's basically hurt too much and the, the battle is over, and she retreats and flies back to basically her parents yes. and crawls into her parents' arms. Um, that was like there were there was a lot of back and forth on developing Shriek's character and arc and how the how her sort of arc would resolve and things like this. Uh, it was a very difficult character to kind of figure out for the story basically, um, and that was just a, one of many suggestions that was thrown around in the story chat, but I, I put together a, a small proposal document saying like, well, maybe this could be the way that her story ends and that it's like she, you know, wraps herself up in her parents' arms and like she never got the warmth that she wanted and this and that. And um, and the fact that it made it into the final game um, was really cool, but what I did not expect was the reaction that players had to that moment. I think that moment in the epilogue from what I saw it breaks people a lot of people yeah. and I didn't expect them. I mean, we hope, right? We hope that people would attach to these characters and have emotional like attachments to them. Um, but it's the antagonist of the game, you know, and the first game had like this somewhat perfect antagonist story wise, because it has this sympathetic angle at the end where it reveal is revealed that she was protecting her children and she's just a mother and this and that. And then she redeems herself. And, and in this case, it's like, well, how do you follow that up? We can't do the same thing again. She had like this. This antagonist has to have some form of, let's say, satisfying, you know, resolution. Even though it's not at all satisfying for people, but that's why, from a story standpoint, it's satisfying. I think you know because it was different and it was strong and emotional. Um, but in any case, I'm 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 just happy to have worked on that or have been able to push us in that direction for her for her end and to see that it actually ended up more or less what was what was proposed. Um, and just because of seeing how it affected people, like I. I like to watch people cry <laughs> because of the stuff that we did. And that was a moment that seems to pretty consistently hit hard. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, those, those are the, the moments where it's like I'm happy that I was able to have some form of contribution on, on the story of the game. When you see a couple ideas here and there that come through that you know that you had a big hand in uh, and see them working like that, that's one of the most satisfying like things in, in the career so far, for sure. I think that, that oh, for ahead. that scene, too... Um, that that moment when that was pitched it was one of those things where i i could just picture it in my head um as soon as i read it and i just thought wow this is going to be a really powerful image so it was yeah it was really cool to see all of that come together and and um you know when it was combined with the music it, it really did turn into this amazing emotional beat it is so moving and i I don't want to expand upon it too much because Chris, you said it perfectly, but basically for me, that's why it was so moving because um, in the blind forest, you have this antagonist, you have Kuro and 
the whole game you're spent you're spent like going against her and then like you said she has this kind of redemption at the end and it's kind of a dichotomy in some ways that shriek doesn't get the redemption and when you see her backstory oh my god that backstory is so heart-wrenching i think that is honestly equally as impactful as that final scene um and it, the final scene, I don't even know if it would have been as impactful without that backstory cut sequence because, man, that just absolutely broke my heart to see that. And you you can't help but empathize with this creature, even though there's no hope. You empathize with the creature at that point. And so when it gets to the end and you see that epilogue sequence, you you like a part of me was hoping that... Even though it would it would be, you know, the same thing as the the first game, but she would get some semblance of redemption, and she doesn't, and that's what's so sad about that, and that's what's so moving. So, man, yeah, and uh, and yet that 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 backstory cutscene actually is some of my favorite animation in the game. Yeah. Like I, every time I see it, when I see the little baby owlets mm-hmm. like hopping around her and she's just trying to make friends and everything like it's heartbreaking, but I, but I love, I, I love that cutscene. Um, and yeah, they go hand in hand, of course, because that, that sort of, that's the setup and then the payoff in the end, like ties it all mm-hmm. back together. But it was actually very tricky um, trying to navigate around this feeling of like, we don't want to rehash the same thing all over again. We don't want to just do this thing where big bad owl actually, <laughs> and then we see a backstory that reveals it's not so bad after all. And then in the end, you know, oh well, you know, it saves the day or is redeemed and stuff like that. Um, even if it, like it's the character's no more deserving of redemption than Kuro, and maybe even more so because like uh, it was treated even worse like from 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 a very young age, you know. Right. But I think. The important thing was to tell a different story and say not every tragic character gets gets redemption. And I think the thing that surprised me the most, I, and it might sound silly that I didn't anticipate it at all, but I really didn't, was how many people, how many players empathized with her and her story. Mm-hmm. But I think because they themselves, they see a reflection of their own personal situation, that they felt like loners, they felt isolated at a younger age, they didn't have many friends, maybe they're even still lonely now, and seeing a character like that, getting no redemption, and having such a like, like sad ending, basically, and basically staying alone forever, I didn't anticipate that hitting people as hard as it did, but now that I think about it, it's like, well, yeah, if you, if you see yourself at all in the stuff that she had to deal with, seeing that ending is going to be pretty heartbreaking for you, because... You, you you might start to think, well, is that what I have waiting for me? Like never having anyone. Exactly. And uh, and I I didn't expect it. And it's not that's not necessarily the story we were trying to tell to bum people out, <laughs> you know. But it's just it's like seeing that layer to it. It's like damn, like the 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 stuff that we're putting in here, it really has like power to move people in ways that you don't even expect. Yeah. yeah but I think that's like the sign that we really tugged on the right strings, you know, because it it if people can empathize with a giant. Mount misformed petrified owl creature from a video game like that means that we sort of managed to make these characters feel believable and you know have realistic like emotions and arcs to them and everything so no yeah, yeah it's a really it's a heart-wrenching situation like her whole her whole storyline um and it's something that i think 
it was important that we didn't follow that same beat of redemption because it goes along with the theme of the game. And a lot of the game is about not everything um, that's gone can come back and not, not everything that's damaged can be healed. And that's true um, for the willow tree uh, and it's true for Shriek. And for Ori, seeing her, this tragic backstory and, and realizing that uh, she can't be redeemed, it's just, it's too late for her. The, the damage is just too great um, emotionally one of the only things that that can be done is to start a new cycle and to return this balance so that others in the future won't won't suffer in the same way yeah um and i i think that that's you know sometimes that's that's the best that we can that we can do you know is to just try to make sure that something terrible that happened before won't happen again yeah i agree that i think that her story complements the ending so fantastically because exactly what you said, whether it's bad or good, um, the cycle will start again and it's the cycle will start again to help those future inhabitants of that world, that universe and the lessons that are learned there, bad and good will be passed along and it's yin and yang at the end of the day that all the good that happens that you see with the family needs to be balanced out in some way, shape or form. And her tragic stories, a, a uh, representation of that, which is, yeah, so masterfully done. Absolutely wonderful. And um, Chris, you had mentioned the boss fights earlier. I didn't want to brush over that. The boss fights are sublime. Uh, the Qualic fight was my absolute favorite fight in the game. Um, I did beat my head a little bit against the wall. I played it on hard and, uh, I was yelling at my TV a little bit and, but it was not a bad thing. It was a very good thing. It was so rewarding. That boss fight was amazing. All the boss fights in that game are just on this grandiose scale and just beautiful. Yeah. Boss fights. Very well done. Very, very well done. Loved them. Yeah. So good. Um, when I was researching Moon Studios and the development of Ori and Will of the Wisps, what I found fascinating, and you guys kind of briefly touched upon it, is that Moon Studios is operated as a decentralized studio structure, which means that it doesn't have a central office that everyone works at. Um, there are people all over the place working from home or working from their own offices. So what were some of the positives that came from working in that style? And I will throw it, actually, Chris, I, I will throw it to you first if you're okay with that. Sure. Um, I mean, the first one that, that always comes up, like, is the power to hire anybody from anywhere, right? Because there's this, this thing where there are talented people all over the world, and the ability for people to work anywhere in the world doesn't usually exist, right? If you're someone who's a really talented artist in Russia, you can't necessarily just walk into a studio in California and say, all right, cool, I'm going to sit down here and I'm going to be a new employee. You have to go through all of this process of getting visas and allowances and this and that, which is not easy for, for anyone. Um, and especially for certain countries and certain people, it's nearly impossible, basically. And the power that Moon Studios has in this regard is we see a talented person in Argentina or a talented person in South Africa, 
and we just basically reach out to them and say, would you like to make some awesome games with us? And if they say yes and they're available, they start on Monday, you know? Um, so there's not this time of like, oh, you have to relocate and bring the whole family or this and that. Like people are where they are. They're talented. They want to collaborate with us. They want to make amazing things. They just are able to basically get on their computer and basically get started. So it's it's really beneficial for us in that regard. Not, the, the downside is that not everybody want like every not every talented person wants to work remotely that's actually quite a lot that i'm sure that it's just never going to cross their mind that that's even a possibility for them um but there is a lot of talent out there who is open to this kind of opportunity and somewhere it's like one of the best opportunities for them because not every country has a booming video game industry right. you know and so for some people in the team like working at moon studios is is the dream because they're actually making like quality games with talented people in a place where otherwise they would basically just be able to work as like tech support in a like some random uh, tech company because they don't have that kind of opportunity structure around them that, that other people have. Um, so I think that's like one of the biggest benefits of of Moon Studios being so distributed is just like talent from anywhere and we can just get together and like make amazing things with people from all over the world. Absolutely. Jeremy, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, that's a great answer right off the bat. I would say uh, another thing that is a positive about it, and you could probably portray it as uh, either way, um, which is that uh, we have a lot of people working in different time zones. And so you might think, well, it's difficult to sync and to work together. Um, but the structure that we've developed, it, it actually works very well. But one of the bonuses to it is that the game is getting worked on, it feels like 24 hours a day because there's always somebody somewhere in a time zone who's making progress. So it's this really cool thing that you go to sleep at night and then when you get up the next morning to start work, there's already people posting you know, a lot of progress in different areas. So every day it's just exciting to wake up and, and see what was happening yeah. you know, maybe on the other side of the world. Um, so cool. and everybody's just working together on the same thing. So it's, it's just this really, it's just a really cool and, and exciting thing to be a part of. Yeah. And being, being an art director, but not working alongside the other artistic, uh, staff directly in an office. Um, what, what went into making sure everyone was on the same page when you were, for example, um, designing an area like Bowers Reach or making sure the animation for Spirit Smash works in every area of the game and is beautiful. Like what goes into that process to work with the other artists in um, Moon Studios? It's just a lot of communication. I mean, you have to have people who are good communicators um, to be able to work in a distributed fashion and we would have daily meetings, um, you know, sometimes very long meetings, especially when we were beginning work uh, on an environment. And we would usually break it down on a very high level initially uh, to really understand, okay, what is the, you know, what are the goals across these different portions of the environment and how can we break that down into subsections? And we would create mind maps and we would create sketches and, um, little sort of like color washes over the environmental layout to really break it down and get everybody onto the, onto the same page. Um, overall, the, I mean, the overlap for the art team, it was pretty good. Uh, I had some artists who were six to seven hours ahead of me and then some artists who were up to three hours behind me. 
So I was I was kind of lucky that I was as close to being in the middle as I could get uh, on the east coast of the United States. Um, so I always had overlap with artists. It was just more I, I would work with some artists more in the mornings and then other artists more you know later in the day. Interesting. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean you, you just have to have the right people. I think especially it's a system that really only works if you have you know the right kind of people in place. Um, and uh, and just communication. I think that's really what it boils down to. That makes sense. And it's it's just such a curious dynamic because I don't think a lot of video game studios before current events were operating um, under those kind of conditions. And it just, the way you guys describe it just sounds so fascinating where there's just someone always working and that kind of motivates you. You wake up in the morning and you're like, oh man, this guy already got something done. Like that's, wow, what he's working on is so exciting. That that makes me want to get, get my butt up and, you know, start working on my project. I would imagine that just, yeah, just totally. the constant flow of uh, work is incredibly motivating. Um, Chris, as a lead designer, I imagine, and you had mentioned this before, actually, which is kind of funny, that you had some ideas that ended up not getting used. But when they do, you and you see the end result, as you've said, it's incredibly, incredibly rewarding. Um, if, you, if you're willing to, I don't know if you're willing to, would you be willing to share one of those ideas that just unfortunately didn't make it into the final product? Uh, that's a good one. I mean, there are so many, um, and I'd, I'd be happy to share them with you. I just have to see if I can remember them. Okay. Because, you know, I, I like in the process, you kind of, if it like months, months ahead of the, the, you know, releasing the game or even a year before you, you've already pretty much trimmed out most of the fat that you can because you have to focus and, and actually, you know, get that quality out there. So a lot of these things are kind of uh, buried, but, uh, well, one of them, okay, so there were a couple really sort of out there ideas um, that kind of didn't work out, but I think that was partially because of the um, uh, the technical requirements that there would be. But, you know, in the windswept wastes, the, the desert area, yes. that was that was one, basically, uh, I did all most of the R&D for that one on the design side for the burrow mechanic, uh, the sand the mechanics, and basically I, I designed most of that environment. Um, and in that process, one of the things that I had explored conceptually was sort of dynamic physical sand that could you know drop down and sort of sand falls that would then build up piles of sand you could then dynamic you know dig through and everything and there was actually a point where there was a small prototype for that but it obviously was like a rough technical prototype and it wasn't optimized it wasn't like something that could actually be in the final game right right um but we were just exploring it and it seemed so cool and so like surprising because you know so many games the world is so static you know um and it's like when, when stuff comes alive and it's not just the background and foreground or characters, but it's like the environment is dynamic and changing around you and stuff and you have to adapt. That's really fun and exciting. Um, Absolutely. And, and this is the kind of idea where it, it, it seemed like it could feel like magic, you know, but unfortunately, you know, prioritization wise, you have to choose, you know, bigger ticket items and stuff. And that was one that, you know, pretty quickly had to sort of, you know, fall by the wayside. Um, we had some other ideas for things like anti-gravity water, kind of like, uh, you know, Mario games have like floating water bubbles you can swim in and stuff. We had a whole area, you know, conceptualized for this kind of stuff. But again, it was one of those crazier out there ideas. And we, we kind of needed to stick to at least getting the grounded base stuff uh, working. And, you know, like we were, it's a talented team of people. 
but you know Ori was a very ambitious game in general, and what we shipped was already very ambitious uh, compared to the first game, I think, yeah. in terms of scale and scope and everything. So, you know, these more out-there ideas are the ones that kind of, like, um, yeah, they just they, they don't quite make it, you know. And then there's plenty of them, but, you know, those are just a couple of the, the more out-there ones that I remember that seemed exciting on paper, would have been a pain in the ass to design for, <laughs> right. but it would have been an, an, an interesting challenge for sure. I. That's so cool to hear like about the dynamic sand because I know in in the in that area that you're talking about there are the suspended sand globes balls and you have to use those to get to some areas and I could just imagine some insane platforming puzzle mechanics with dynamic sand would just be so cool to see something like that actualized and it, it makes perfect sense the reasoning for taking some of that stuff out. I couldn't imagine trying to um, not necessarily animate that, but make sure uh, mechanics wise that it all is fleshed out and isn't buggy or anything like that. I couldn't imagine trying to integrate that. Oh, it would have been a nightmare for sure for all involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it looked cool on paper. So that that was the thing. It sounds But amazing. yeah, totally. Yeah. Jeremy, you had previously worked for the beloved Blizzard Entertainment. And after yes. and after being captivated with what Moon Studios did with the Blind Forest, when they offered you the job, you of course joined them. Um I was curious what knowledge you were able to bring from your past experiences of working with um Blizzard to bring to this project. How that helped you? Yeah, at Blizzard, I, I spent the majority of my career at Blizzard Cinematics, and I was working on the uh, the in-game cinematics team for the StarCraft II trilogy. So um, that was an ongoing project because it was the you know the game and then the two expansions. So it was almost I think nine years that I was there doing that, um, and so everything was just based around you know story moments and and how they were translated into visuals. So uh, although I was working primarily as a 3D artist and then ultimately as a as a lead cinematic artist on Legacy of the Void, um, I was I was definitely able to appreciate that process and to witness how things were built, um, you know how they transitioned from uh, from a script to storyboards to animatics and color scripts, you know, and then and then ultimately into the engine. And then polished with the effects and the sound effects and the music and everything. So it was something that I was just able to be a part of and to witness firsthand. Um, and I, I think I was just able to draw a lot of experience from that. And then also by the end, just um, as a lead, uh, having the opportunity to manage a small group of people and, and give them directions and make sure that we were all aligned and working towards a you know, similar goal. Um, and Blizzard is very focused on quality. You know, Blizzard Cinematics is known for quality, and that's something that we all took a lot of pride in. Um, so I think there were a lot of just great lessons that I learned there and that, that really helped me in my career. So uh, when I finally had the opportunity to, to join Moon and to have a chance to direct for myself, which was something that I'd been wanting to do, um, it was like a dream come true. And I was able to, you know, take a lot of the, a lot of the lessons from the things that I had seen and then just apply them to what we were doing here. And even though for me it was the first time doing a lot of that stuff um, in a professional manner, uh, I felt like I had a good grasp on it. Um, and uh, and thankfully it all worked out. 
So, yeah. Um, yeah, it was just a great opportunity and, and at the right time for me in my career. That's really awesome. It's cool to hear that you worked on, cause Starcraft two is a phenomenal game and all the expansions were so much fun. Um, I've played that off and on with one of my friends throughout the years and it's really cool to see that you amassed all this information and it just informed the next project that almost seemingly has no correlation between the two, but all that experience actually went to very good use um, with Ori and the Will of the Wisps. It's it's just kind of crazy to think about how two completely different games, yet that skill set really in, in a lot of ways prepared you for um, making an awesome game. Yeah, stylistically, I mean, they're completely different. Um, although I would say Ori stylistically is probably much more in line with what I, my personal taste and what I like, um, which made it a perfect fit for me. Uh, but a lot of the ingredients that go into how you build things, um, it's, it's universal. And, um, you know, that was definitely applicable. That's awesome. Yeah. Chris, uh, modding and animating for Warcraft 3 during your high school years required not only a high level of discipline to churn out continual work, but it also took a lot of passion, of course. Do you feel like that level of discipline in your formative years of designing helped you with a project like Ori and the Will of the Wisps, where you had to not only work with an awesome team of developers, but to work remotely? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I've brought this up sometimes um, when I talk to people about, you know, some people like to ask me about my, my career path and stuff, because um, I, I, I live in Mexico right now, and Mexico has a sort of growing video game, you know, presence, but it's not as established as in other countries, so they're very curious about, you know, like, oh, so an example of someone who kind of, like, it made it, and how, how do you get there and stuff, and something I always end up coming back to is exactly what you brought up is that my modding experience so just um my when i was in high school i decided i played a, a ton of warcraft 3 um and i loved it and discovered that it was like moddable and uh i, I went to a forum of people like the called uh, warcraft 3 campaigns where people were modding the game and sharing you know all their cool stuff and i was looking around and going like man everybody's doing such so many models and levels and all this kind of cool stuff and textures and it's like I want to be a part of this but I want to I don't want to just do more of what other people are doing because like how am I going to compete with people that that already know how to model and stuff and so I looked and I was like what is something that nobody's doing on this forum so if I do it it'll stand out and they don't have any frame of reference to compare it to you know yeah. and and so then I I saw animation was something that nobody was doing and it was like Oh, that's cool. I'll do. I'll be an animator then. And then you start looking into how it works, and you're like, oh, maybe there's a reason not so many people are doing it here. It's pretty complicated <laughs> for a for a modder, you know. Yeah. And I just followed some some tutorials. I grabbed some models from people in the community and started like animating. And just honestly, like if if I ever talked to an animator about the way that I you know quote unquote rigged these characters and animated things, uh, it'd be like a horror story for them. Like it, there was no proper rig or anything. It was so badly done but it worked in the engine so you know who who cared right um but the fun thing was that yeah it it's very similar to moon studios in a sense because in that time uh, as a modder i worked with people from all over the world through a forum online sometimes i had some calls with them uh, when we were collaborating on something 
but usually it was just through forum and, and DMs, you know. Um, and yeah, I, I was living in Europe at the time. I was collaborating with people in the States very regularly. And it, it was kind of like a sort of, yeah, mini, mini Moon Studios sort of dynamic that I was already sort of getting a hang of there. Um, and it required a lot of, yeah, like you said, discipline and, and passion to kind of like autonomously teach myself the, the principles of animation, uh, look at what other people had done, sort of try to figure out the process of getting things into the game. And the fun thing is the more I did it, the better I got, the more pe the, the better reputation I had in the community and more people started asking me for like, oh, can you animate this silly model I did or this or that? And I just kept doing it because it's like, yeah, cool, I have stuff to do, it's fun. Um, and then some people asked me to join projects and actually I joined, a, there was like this total conversion mod that was being worked on to do like a dwarf campaign for Warcraft and they, they wanted me to join as an animator. So I did, but then me and my big mouth, like within a few months, they, they basically promoted me to like, uh, like the co-lead of the project, you know, and I was working with them on sort of the story and the levels and this and that and, and animation, of course, yeah. you know. But it's just, it was, and it's, it's kind of the same thing that happened at Moon. You know, like I joined as a level designer and over the years I, I talk, like I'm very interested in a lot of different topics and subjects and this and that. And all of a sudden, like by the end of the project, I, I found myself being titled lead designer in the credits. And it's like, well, that's really cool. I, I wasn't hired as that person, but the fact that it sort of naturally happened through this process of like passion, autonomy, like drive and everything else and being in an environment that promotes that and encourages it um it was it was just very much a parallel to like what what i did when i was in high school and it's funny to see my my experience kind of come full circle you know like starting in that sort of distributed autonomous passionate environment where you're just doing it because you love it and then going to school to study working in an office and and basically you know figuring out how games are actually made in a studio and stuff and then kind of coming back and taking all of that experience and and then working in an environment like this where it's a combination of all of the things that i've learned um and almost getting back to basics and stuff like yeah it felt like a really cool return to form for like you know how, what got me started in this entire industry so that's a funny parallel to, to draw for sure absolutely it's it's kind of crazy to think about that where you were just doing it for the passion and because of your curiosity and drive, it got you all the way to where you're at. Obviously, there's a lot more to it. Skill is involved, you know, studying the aspects that you want to get better at. But just just how far you have come uh, just because you wanted it so badly. And I think that goes for both of you, to be honest with you. Just pushing through with your passion is amazing because I think there's so many people who in theory would love to work in this industry and um, the passion that I think is required to get to where you guys are at, it, it's, it's applaudable and commendable to be honest with you. It's, it's, I, I definitely don't have that level of passion to do what you guys do because it's, it's amazing what you guys have done not just with this game, but just in your guys' careers. So it's it's cool. It's really, really cool to hear your guys' very different and unique stories and how it's brought both of you to end up working on this game. It's awesome to just hear it firsthand. Oh, um, thank you, man. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to ask one question about the story specifically. 
Ori and the Blind Forest has such an emotional and impactful story, yet it's told largely through visuals and music with it, uh, a slight amount of narrative. Um, there's some narration there, but it acts secondary to what the player is seeing visually and what the player what the player is hearing through the soundtrack. With the increased level of animation and vignettes in the game, was there any pressure to raise the stakes in the story a second time? Or was it more of a vessel for the team to conclude this chapter in the Ori universe? And I will throw it to you first, Jeremy. I think that we always knew what the end of the story was going to be. Um, because even when I was first hired, I think even before I was hired, when I, when I just talked to Thomas, he told me, um, what the planned ending for the game was. Um, that was one thing that it was just a certainty. And I thought, wow, that's a really cool idea. That's, that's really interesting to take this approach of it's, it's like a life cycle and you're bringing things all the way back around full circle to the very beginning of, of blind forest. Um, so we knew that that was the end goal. Uh, we knew that for the game itself that it was going to be much bigger. It was going to be a lot more expansive. There were going to be a lot of NPCs. And that that meant that uh, although it is a, a heavily... Um, it, the storytelling is heavily visual and, and uh, heavily relies on the music, that it would require more dialogue with NPCs. Um, so we knew that that was going to be a part of it. I think we didn't know exactly how all of that was going to balance out, except that it would be a little different um, to Blind Forest because of that. But I think that we were able to strike a good balance with it um, because we're able to have a lot of these more dialogue-heavy moments with NPCs and get a lot of storytelling and a lot of lore uh, through them because of that. But then at the same time, we do have these moments that are purely audiovisual. Um, and obviously, Gareth Coker's music, you know, does a ton of heavy lifting there. Um, usually, when we would create story sequences, uh, you know, you would feel like you have something pretty strong um, just in the animatic and just with the visuals. And then when he would get his hands on it and he would he would put the music to it, it would just take it to a whole other level. So um, that was that was a huge part of the game. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think. It, we wanted to expand on the narrative. We wanted to expand on the lore, expand on the world. We knew that we needed to get Ori to a new place, um, just just for uh, just for gameplay purposes. I mean, we don't want to just be retreading the exact same areas. So we had to get Ori out of Nibel. So that was a big part of, you know, the story initially was okay. Well, what what is going to be the motivation? How are we going to displace Ori? Um, and uh, you know, and then just following through on that narrative, you know, that story for Ori as a character that Chris mentioned earlier and, and how we would sort of, how we would build up that progression of responsibility, that progression of going from the role of a child in, in Blind Forest to the role of, uh, you know, of an older sibling and then, and then a protector and then, you know, and ultimately taking on that, that largest responsibility of becoming a new spirit tree and, and bringing balance to, you know, to all of these people and putting an end to, you know, and then to the suffering that was taking place there. Um, you know, they were all ingredients that we, uh, that we knew that we wanted to build upon or, or that we kind of discovered along the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chris, did you want to add to that? No, I think that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> I, I agree. I wanted to make sure that you got any, anything you wanted to say first. I, 
yeah, just the story is is interesting, and it's cool to hear that you guys were basically the the second you walked in were given the ending, and it was you guys figuring out how to take it from A to B. And one of my one of my favorite things about the Blind Forest is uh, Gumo's arc, because Gumo is this pest in the in the first game, and then Gumo becomes this absolutely lovable character, and then you have Gumo in The Will of the Wisps and he's still this lovable character um, that that story thread carries all the way through and you actually still care about that character. And I think that was one of the most impactful parts about the game is that each and every character, you cared about that character, uh, whether it was Ori, the main character, and Ku, or whether it was Qualic or um, Bayer. For example, just every character that had a decent amount of screen time that you cared about them. And I think that I think that's really important because in the first game, there weren't a lot of side characters. There were there were a few. There was Gumo. um, There was uh, obviously the two main characters. And then there was the antagonist. And that was pretty much it for the most part. And with Will of the Wisp, you guys had introduced all these new characters and they're all important. They're all integral to the game. And just the fact that all these new characters could be added and no matter how long or how few that they had on screen time, you care about them as the player. And I thought that was just one of the most impressive aspects about this game is the fact that the writing was so well done with minimal talking other than from the narrator yet you care about these characters and you had mentioned gareth coker's soundtrack which i think is phenomenal and it's kind of cool to hear that because basically everything that you guys worked on and then everything that he worked on was very mutualistic in that it brought out the best in both of what you guys were trying to do ultimately and that even added more to these amazing characters those characters are Man, some of the best characters I've encountered in gaming in a long, long time. All of them. So It, it was a real challenge for that because, like you said, the cast was so much bigger um, than Blind Forest. And so just trying to find how do we how do we build up each of these characters and how do we make them feel unique and, and try to, in a short amount of space, um, to help the player to, to care for them. Um, that was something that, I mean, definitely a lot of thought was put into that from, from the entire story team. And, um, you know, it's great to hear that, that, that hard work paid off. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys for that. (laughs) Thank you. But also deciding to like, um, deciding which characters deserve how much screen time and which ones deserve arcs like that are like bigger Mm -hmm. than others and this and that, like, it's very difficult, you know, because it would be nice to have every major side character have an arc as as uh, impre- like as big in terms of scale and res- resolution as Polak's, for example. But I mean, obviously, as you know, like not all of the bigger side characters like Mora and Bar have an arc like that extensive in the game. Um, but that that comes down to like not only like time constraints for production, but also just like it, in the grand scheme of Ori's story and the arc of that and the, the what the player is going through and everything else. Like which characters are really integral to that and which ones can maybe take more of a, a side position to 
emphasize like the the themes and everything else without necessarily having to take center stage like a more in- important character uh, as Quolock does. And even the little side characters in the Wellspring Glades, for example, or the little Moki and stuff, like they add flavor. And there's even a, I'm actually, we were really impressed. There was a, a small side mission um, with petrified Moki family in the in oh, the Silent yes. Woods. And uh, like, so we were looking for side quests and things to sort of populate the world and give you little deviations from your main path. And that was just one of them that it was like, oh, there, there's like a suggestion from one of our level designers about something like this. And we were like, oh yeah, that sounds pretty pretty heavy, you know? And so we started putting it in the game and this and that and everything else. And team team members start playtesting. And some of them just like post in one of the chats like, okay, who the hell put this little <laughs> petrified Moki family thing in there? That is horrific. Like, I'm so sad right now, you know? And it's just like, we, did, like, we didn't expect it to, to really have the impact that it did. But there were some people that said like, I had to put the controller down for 15 minutes and walk away when I when I saw like the Moki dad, you know, wow. petrified with his family and stuff. And it's like that was that was like side content, you know. But we did we were conscious about it. Like we were trying to tell a little a little you know sad story there. You know, it wasn't just like oh screw it, let's just fill up some space, right? Um, but it's it's just again impressive how like side characters and just no matter how small or minor they are, depending on what you do with them. Um, like can, can be like extremely impactful on people like that's one of the moments that i think a lot of people have mentioned like that made them cry and shriek obviously the end and the end of the game and uh the midpoint you know moment of the game but it's just impressive that just this tiny little side thing with a with a moki which is like there's a there are a dime a dozen in the game world you know they're all over the place asking for silly things that little thing actually hit people the way it did and it was just a side character thing so and the fun thing is it's not like we tried to give it we didn't give it any form of center stage or like any like level of significance over a lot of the other characters in the game but for people and for their personal experience it was a standout moment and that that in itself is quite impressive i think absolutely there, there are so many of those moments as well i think in some ways like I didn't expect the ending, but I expected the emotion that was going to come with the ending. You know, like I knew that something emotional was going to happen. Having played the blind forest, you know, something moving is going to happen. But when you see the conclusion of Qualix arc or the petrified Moki that you're mentioning, or um, the, the ending of Shriek's arc, just th- there are these unexpected moments of, deep emotional impact and i think that's such a huge huge aspect of it just not expecting it and they were so well paced as well when when i finished the qualic fight and what happens happens i i was like what where is this coming from like why why is this happening i was it really really bothered me i because i really i really was enjoying that arc and it, it it was it, it bothered me so much because it was well written and it was well paced and i think that's such an important aspect to point out about this game is the pacing of the narrative and the pacing of all these characters is second to none um i you you had mentioned that you were worried about how much screen time was given to these characters you guys nailed it because n- no character feels to me feels out of place no character feels 
like they didn't get too much or not enough screen time. It felt like they got the right amount and it added so much to the story. Um, yeah, just the pacing is incredibly well done in this game. And I think that deserves mentioning. So. It's funny it. as well that um, when it comes to these different story moments, we, we obviously discuss them a lot in the story team and, and we have a lot of strong convictions about them when we, when we decide, okay, we're going to do this. But then throughout production, you might see these scenes, you know, a hundred times, 500 times, and you start to become a little bit numb to it. And so there are times, at least for me personally, where I thought, you know, it, you know, is this really going to land? Like, will this, will the emotion come across enough? I, I think it should. Like, logically, my head tells me it should. But for me personally, I've just, I've seen this so many times now. Um, so like Chris mentioned before, it, you know, it's really amazing to to watch, you know, sometimes people post streams and so on, and you can see someone experiencing that firsthand and, and for the first time and to see the impact that it has. Um, it's, it's just, it's amazing because you can, then you can see, wow, like all of these discussions and all of these things that all these little details that we really agonized over, um, they did pay off and, and it did work the way that we, that we had hoped that it would. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah the funny, you... the, 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 Oh, sorry, just to elaborate a little bit, or just an anecdote, I guess. The funny thing for me is there are those moments where you get desensitized from certain, like, big, heavy-hitting things. But I have to be honest, like, some moments in the game, they manage to tear me up pretty much every time I see them. And I think, I mean, a lot of it, I think, is the music, to be fair. For example, in the, in the flight sequence at the beginning of the game, where Ori and, and Ku are, like, flying for the first time... The moment that they sort of like erupt through the clouds and there's like this sunset above the clouds, the music swells, the, the vocals come in for the first time in that, in that you know, musical sequence, and then they go diving through. I don't know, every time something hits me there emotionally. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I didn't really work on that, on that sequence all that much. Like I wasn't that involved in it for, in my capacity, you know, um, but I saw it from start to finish. And there was some moment, and I think it was the moment the music came into that sequence, like the first time I saw it with music. I was like, whoa, and I think I, I had tears in my eyes at that, that rising moment. But I think it, it's funny because I think for me, part of that emotional, like the, 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 the reaction that I get to some of these moments in the game, still myself, even if I've seen them a thousand times, is kind of like uh, almost like an emotional payoff to our journey as the developers of the story, you know, like that we, we put in years of work to get these moments the way that they are. And so almost seeing the final version of that is like the resolution to a story arc in a way, you know, because it's like we went through the journey of taking it from start to finish and now it's there. And that in itself, like, adds an extra layer of emotion, I think, for me personally, totally. when I'm witnessing some of these moments that maybe some other people wouldn't feel <laughs> that it's like, but but I, I get like an extra layer of it. And so it's just I find it really impressive that some some parts of the game, no matter how many times I've seen them, they still get me. Um, and yeah, I, I just find that really, really interesting. Yeah, I I can't imagine the emotional and mental toll it would take to just come up with all these ideas and for years have something in development and just to not know whether or not it's all going to work out. And then when you see that final pro product, especially with a game like this, which I think there's such a purity and... Um, I don't know if I, I'm going to stick with purity in the emotion that it conveys, just the, the raw emotion that it conveys 
that it's kind of cathartic in a lot of ways to see that end product unfold the way it does because there there's a ton of just raw emotion and i think that's so much because of the art design and because of the music and it it just hits on so many notes so that part you're talking about is just like that is one of the highest points in both the, the blind forest and will of the wisp it's like it is just the most jubilant one of the most jubilant scenes in the in the entire both of those games and then to think about where other parts of the game go it's just such a um staggering difference so yeah that scene was incredibly incredibly moving for me as well i I loved that scene because that that is the happiest point of the game (laughs) is them soaring through the clouds and flying together Absolutely. That sure. was a technically challenging sequence too, because we were we were trying a lot of things that we didn't even know for a fact if you know if we could do them. It was so different um, to shots from from Blind Forest. We were doing a lot of kind of over the shoulder fly throughs and and more three dimensional cameras. Um, and I remember when we started working on it, uh, our creative director Thomas had just told me, you know, just come up with you know, just come up with cool stuff and we'll find a way to make it work. Um, and so it was really liberating when we, you know, when we were working on that sequence and then to see that, yeah, like a lot of these ideas that we had that they, uh, that they came through and and it all worked out. Yeah. You guys got the ultimate green light. It sounds like. (laughs) Yeah. On that one for sure, because we knew that we wanted to have this big moment, uh, at the, towards the end of the prologue. Um, and we also knew coming into it that we, because people had played Blind Forest, that they might be expecting that there was going to be a really sad beat right at the beginning of the game. And a lot of people would have their guard up for that, thinking that it was going to be the exact same thing again. And we knew that we didn't just want to follow that like a, a paint by numbers type of approach. Right. And so we knew that, you know, this game is its own thing and this is its own story. And the beats are going to be paced differently, you know, where the highs and the lows are. And so while Blind Forest, you know, really went low in the prologue, for us, a lot of it was about what you were saying, this jubilation. It's like a celebration and um, that we really wanted to have that that visual spectacle to go along with it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and I think it really did turn into a, an amazing sequence in the end, you know, and all the credit goes to the team for everything that they poured into it. For sure. An incredible, incredible scene. Yeah. I have so many more questions, but... I'm going to pare it down to two final questions for you guys. That way I don't keep you guys here all day. I know you guys have a lot to do. So my one of my last two questions is, I don't know if you guys can reveal this, is there any possibility that we will see another installment in the Ori universe in the future, whether it's five years from now, 100 years from now, is there any possibility whatsoever that we will get another entry? Uh, I'll I'll take this one maybe quickly. Uh, I from anything's possible, obviously, and I think that the the idea of the ending, the fact that it ends with this leaf that's been born from the from basically Ori's spirit tree uh, and flying off, mirroring the beginning of the first game, it serves multiple purposes. You know, it 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 shows you that there's this the cycle is re- is continuing you know it brings us back to the beginning and it shows that there is going to be a new beginning right and that there could very well be a continuation to the story um but at the same time it's meant to also signify 
that this is the conclusion of Ori's story, right? Yeah. That like he's he's gone through the process from being born into basically transcending into his <laughs> final form, let's say. <laughs> um, and and I think that 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 is ultimately the story that Moon Studios wanted to tell for for Ori. Uh, basically, the end of this game is exactly what our creative director wanted Ori's story to basically ultimately end at. Um, so I'll just say, like, obviously anything's possible, and we made sure that the way that the game ended, that, uh, you know, there there is always the possibility for a continuation of, you know, this, this universe and everything, but the story that we wanted to tell, I would say we told it, um, for what that's worth. It's worth if Jeremy wants to elaborate. Yeah, please, if, if Jeremy wants to. Um, I don't really have too much to add on top of that other than, yeah, what, I mean, what Chris said is that I think the door was left cracked open and that there's always a possibility to return to that. Um, but, uh, I think that he, you know, he pretty much summed it up. Okay. I, I simply asked not cause I'm trying to get like breaking news here, but simply because I, for what it's worth, I absolutely love the way this game ends and it makes, it would make a lot of sense to me personally, if that, if that this was the last time we ever see Ori, because it just, the way it ends has such a beautiful conclusion to it. Um, there's not this sense of finality to it, but at the same time, it feels like this, this was the right amount of time for this journey. And, um, I, I would of course definitely love to see another, entry into this universe in general because it's so gorgeous and breathtaking and just even the mechanics that you guys introduced and um, honed on from the first one to this game is incredible it it was probably one of the smoothest uh, Metroidvania style games I've ever played in my entire life um, the, the combat is absolutely so rewarding the way you start with just minimal abilities to be able to you you can swim underwater to just do a triple jump to to land into some sand to spirit smash somewhat like just the way the movement in this game is so effortless and it's so much fun so i would absolutely love to see another game in this universe whether or not ori is a part of it um is i mean i i'm happy either way at the end of the day so I just wanted to get that out there. This, yeah, this universe is so amazing, and I would love to see another entry in there, whether Ori's in it or not. Um, the final question I had for you guys uh, before I let you go is I wanted to give you guys the opportunity, if you want, to talk about personally, if, if there's anything you guys personally as individuals are, are working on or if there's something that in general Moon Studios is working on, I would love to give you guys the platform to be able to um, talk about that for a few minutes if you'd like. Uh, Jeremy, if you'd like to go first. Um, let me think. I'm, I'm not working on anything personally currently. I do have a self-published children's book um, from a few years ago that I did. Uh, it's called The Inn at the Edge of the World. You might still be able to find it on Amazon. Um, and you know, that's a personal project that's very kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's obviously not as, not as heavy emotionally as, um, as Ori, 
but uh, it's it's a lot more just funny and magical, um, you know, and meant for younger children. It's it's something that I I developed once I became a father, um, and I wanted to write something for my kids. So, uh, yeah, that's really it for me um, on the personal level. Uh, hope to do more in the future, but uh, we'll just have to see how you know how that works out schedule wise. That's awesome. Is is your book uh, eligible for like an ebook or is it just pay, uh, hard copy only? Uh, it is hard copy only okay. for right now. Okay, that's fine. I was curious because I have a Kindle and I was like, as soon as this interview is done, I'm going to buy it. But I'm going to I'm going to still go look on Amazon see if I can pick up a copy. That's awesome. I didn't even know you had done a book before. That's incredible. Um, oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Chris, uh, same question goes to you. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had the the the, the mental capacity to to do something outside of work hours, uh, but like usually working at Moon Studios can be pretty creatively draining uh, with the amount of time that we put into it and the the thought and care and everything. Um, so I don't really have any personal things that are going on on the side. Uh, but I would say the one thing that I could mention is. Um, you know, whenever I finish working on a project, uh, I I really enjoy doing these kinds of things. Podcast. I've, this is actually the first podcast I've been on, so thanks for that. Um, but Thank you. I've done I've done interviews, and I, I tend to do things like uh, conference presentations and things, guest lectures and stuff, just because I really love being able to talk about the process of making these games. Um, and what goes into it and the amount of care that we put into things and also just like giving people more insight into into the different aspects of it so i'll just say that now that orion the will of the wisps is out like i i'm i'm very interested and open in any kind of you know opportunity or possibility to talk with people and share share knowledge and you know our experience and and talk about you know whatever people want to just chat about with with ori so if anyone's interested in you know having a chat or, you know, something similar to this or whatever, like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally open for that kind of stuff. Like I, I dig that. So yeah, that's pretty much it. I, I wanted to thank you guys so much for coming on the show because I started this, um, podcast a few years ago because I feel like there are many gamers out there who kind of play the games and they have their, their high points, the, the things they love about the game or the things that they criticize about the game. And, me having played games my whole life, I never really understood truly what goes into the process of the creation and the development of a video game and how painstaking it can be and how rewarding it can be. So I wanted to highlight that for people like myself who just want to know, but just don't know, like don't know how to find that out and don't, don't know how much you can trust Wikipedia or things of that nature that, that, to just be able to advertise that and share that love um, for the games that people really connect with, you know, Ori was a game I I played and I I didn't want to put it down and I didn't put it down for for <laughs> from beginning to end. I absolutely love that game and to be able to just hear you guys describe the love you had for every step of the process and just how proud you guys are makes me personally feel so much more connected with this game. And that at, at the end of the day is why I'm so thankful because I want to share your guys's passion for what you created with the world. So thank you guys so much for coming on this podcast and doing that. It means a lot 
to me and I know that it will mean a lot to people that connected so much with this game like I did. So thank you guys so, so much. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, thank you, man. It was it was a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're no, totally. It's it's been a lot of fun. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no, thank you guys so much. Um, <clears throat> but that will wrap up the episode. Uh, if you guys want to check it out, uh, Ori and the Will of the Wisps is available on Xbox and Microsoft Windows. It's also currently available on Xbox Game Pass. Um, so yeah, definitely please, please, please check it out. It's a game you do not want to miss this year or in your life in general. Um, and when you play it, make sure you have a bottle, a bottle, a box of <laughs> tissues next to you. Uh, you will definitely need them. But I want to say one more time, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Chris, so much for being here. I appreciate you guys um, taking time out of your day. And I want to say a big thank you to Moon Studios for... Um, both The Blind Forest and The Will of the Wisps. Amazing, amazing games. So uh, last but not least, thank you to the listeners. Thank you for um, listening to me attempt to do an interview with two amazing individuals. And uh, be well. <laughs>